Oh God, maybe it's Ken putting voices into my head. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's actually me. You summoned me into into corporeal form. Hello there and welcome to episode 88 of Right Wheel Sitting Now, the podcast for the site sittingnow.co.uk. Um, yeah, so this week is a bit of a bit of a strange one. It's just me again, in case you haven't noticed. Sorry about that. No, Mr. Satir should be back soon, don't worry. So it's a bit of a weird one. We are, or I am, interviewing someone who is often a co-host on this show. And no, it's not Mr. Mark Satir. Um, it is, in fact, Mr. Ulysses Black. Uh, Mr. Ulysses Black, who has been the co-host on the show a few times now. Um, we're basically talking about a book that he's just released, or re-released, I should say, uh, called The Voyage of Ulysses Black. And it's a it's a lovely, hefty tome. And it's a book kind of cataloguing the various explorations of Mr. Black's attempts or, uh, you know, successes, in this case, of having conversation with his holy guardian angel, knowledge and conversation of his holy guardian angel. Um, for those that don't realise, um, Ulysses is a uh, you know, fairly well-regarded magician in the occult world. Um, he's, you know, published many books. Uh, if, he's in Howlins, I think, which is one of Scarlet Imprint's books. He's uh, published um, books under the name Jack Macbeth that were very, very well regarded uh, when they came out. Uh, what else has he done? He's also, you know, a very experienced performance artist. <laughs> um, and actually, if you look back in the, if you go to our YouTube channel at Sitting Now, you'll see there are videos of uh, him talking about this very subject on the Summer of Love uh, Scarlet, Scarlet Imprint event that we uh, filmed back in the day, quite a long time ago now. God, time flies. Anyway, I think it's probably better with this interview, if with this episode rather, if we just go into the interview um, straight away, because why not? Let's do it. Well, this is weird. I don't normally uh, have the... A, I don't normally have the guest in front of me, and B, the guest isn't someone that I hang out with all the time. <laughs> but uh, you, uh, some of our listeners may be aware of our uh, guest today, but um, uh, Ulysses Black, will you give us a brief biography of yourself, please? Ah, hello. Um, yes, yeah, so my name's Ulysses Black. I am an artist and a ritualist with a background in ritual magic um, of a whole variety. Uh Background of myself. How far back do you want me to go? Okay. Well, I, I got into got into magic as a young teenager. I've had quite a uh, a life of it. So I got I got into magic when I was a teenager. I think actually thirteen. Um, although my sort of background in it goes way back to my childhood, which uh, which I can talk about if you like. Um, and I guess most people that know me in the occult world, which probably isn't very many, will know me from the book The Totemic Invocation of the Shadow Selves, which I published in 2002 under the name Jack Macbeth. Um, and I immersed myself in a sort of self-devised system of sorcery that drew heavily on 
Kenneth Grant, Andrew Chumley, Austin Spare, Carlos Castaneda, and then everything with a sort of unescapable underpinning of Alistair Crowley <laughs> and Chums. He's he's uh we always say it, he's you can't really escape from him. Every episode his name comes up. Well, that was reference number one. (laughs) (laughs) So after the Totemic Invocation came out, I then continued to work with uh, my own system of sorcery and personal development over a number of years and uh, engaged in some sort of strange practices with myself and with a group of other people who are variously known on the occult scene, although I'll keep their names quiet for the sake of uh, discretion. Um, and then I went to university as a mature student in the late noughties where I studied performance art uh, and continued to engage with uh, all of my occult and ritual practices using a performance art degree to develop my understanding of how rituals work in combination with my own actual sort of magical development for want of a better term. This culminated in uh, some particular breakthrough experience that would be identified as the uh, knowledge and conversation of the Holy Guardian Angel, which uh, bore remarkable fruit. And since that point, and since my contact with my Holy Guardian Angel, I have uh, dedicated myself exclusively to the practices of ritual, most specifically trying to delve into how and why we do rituals, how we can make our rituals better, if that is even an appropriate term, what constitutes rituals, what rituals we might do. Along the way, I have done all sorts of things. I undertook a long campaign to invoke ritual itself as a god form into myself, drawing um, on my decades by this later point of uh, research into into rituals and really trying to embody rituals. From that point onwards, I did various things, trained to be a celebrant, so I marry and bury people, although I do that a little bit less these days and mostly train other people how to do that. And I've most recently been working with the HM Prison Service, training new chaplains in ritual techniques that they can help um, bring to their people who are their clients who are operating in the, under more restricted areas like prisons or hospitals. Yeah, that's probably about it. Yeah, it's interesting. You bury people. Yes, indeed. Or, oh. cre- or cremate them. All right, that's, you know, to bury someone in, in modern parlance has a different meaning. Oh, I see. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, well, yes, there might be a bit of that as well. Yeah, you body them. No, no, it's, um, so we talk about this, we know each other you know, we live in the same town and we hang out together quite a bit. So we often have conversations where I'm, I'm always saying, oh, damn, we should re- we should record this. Um, so we're going to do a bit of that today. But also you have a, a book out, um, which is a kind of reprint, but has a bit of a... I was confused until you explained it earlier, actually, why it says 2012 on it when it's 11 years later, obviously. Um, but talk, let's just talk first a little bit about the book. Um uh about the book the object itself and then we'll 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 move on okay and then um 2009 when i completed my degree i uh released a book called the voyage of ulysses black which charted uh a year-long series of magical activities 
Um, and I released this book, sold all the copies, uh, but the making of the book was also part of the process itself. So in order to sort of complete that part of the process, I then redid the book, including a section on the creation of the book itself in a kind of weird self-referential way. And this uh, I completed in 2012, and it has sat as a PDF lost on uh, on hard drives for 10 years until I happened to discover it about three months ago and thought, oh, there it is. <laughs> I'll have a look at that. And thought, yes, okay, maybe I should put this back out again and uh, and let it see the light of day. So, uh, so yes, so I have just released the Voyage of Ulysses Black, which is, yeah, charts this year of strange live art slash performance art slash ritual magical activity um, that, that sort of, yeah, mapped that formative point in my life. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a handsome volume as well. It's a uh, what's it's like a big A4 kind of beast of a book with fully illustrated and yeah. One of the things that I learnt when I was uh, doing my degree, particularly with performance-related things, performances are ephemeral moments in time, and so unlike a sculpture or a painting where you just have the artifact that lives on, performances don't live on in quite that same way. So. I just began documenting everything as a matter of course. Got myself a good camera and just started taking photographs of everything that was going on. And the upshot of that is that I have a fantastic record of, of everything. And I'm a fastidious note taker, so I've got diaries and diaries and diaries that all have the notes. Of the so I was a fastidious note taker, so I have a lot of magical diaries that all have the workings out, the reflections, the doodles, and all of this kind of stuff to to underpin it all. Yeah, 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 yeah. You always you always documenting everything, aren't you? That's right. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so we'll come back to the book because obviously the book kind of ties into um, what I want to talk to you about, which is the Ulysses Black Initiative. Um, but okay. before that, I thought one thing we talk about a lot is the kind of do you think we're in. A period of magical change and what i mean by that is do you feel that we're in a period where the occult itself is changing and the kind of the way um the, the, the i guess the way people interact with the occult the kind of person that's becoming interested in the occult and the way that occultists communicate with each other feels like it's really evolved especially over the last few years do you agree with that or yes yeah, certainly i think um Humanity itself has has changed um, in the last, well, in the sort of post-nuclear age. Um, and certainly given the access to social media and the internet that has blossomed in the, in the last 20 years or so, then the actual ways that we communicate and the ways that individual practitioners and groups can uh, have a dialogue has changed. But I also think that um, there is... Uh, the scope for uh, new approaches to magic and ritual that are emerging. And there is this sort of strange dichotomy that um, rituals are given a sense of legitimacy through sort of timelessness, these ancient practices that we've been doing in this sense of sort of ongoing traditions. When in actual fact, you know, lots of, lots of things like, you know, the the Golden Dawn and stuff like that, some, you know, seminal groundwork for, for Crowley and then Crowley's systems that have come since then. 
in some respects sort of represent a sort of golden benchmark. But there's also been a slight sort of fixation on them to the point where there is a sense that if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Where now these rituals have been written and now they have may or may not have claims to any sort of historic legacy that somehow they're perfect and that that's all we need to do. And I just don't think that's the case. I don't think that magic stands still as such. I think it is as a ostensibly human practice. It keeps pace with the humans that are practicing it. And it is something that is shaped and sculpted to fit our needs. The other thing that's interesting is the kind of trends within magic as well. So we've been talking about this a lot for a project we're looking at doing. Um, but Kenneth Grant, for example, is suddenly everywhere it's it's bizarre that you know grant was always sort of in the background a lot of the time wasn't he and he was almost a mocked character for quite a long time as well uh by especially by thelemites you know mainstream as we call them thelemites like oto members etc but now he seems to be almost a beloved character in not quite you know not as powerfully recognized as crowley for example but certainly within the magical community his reputation seems to have got a lot better you know and and it seems like this new generation of magicians coming in are all kind of adopting Kenneth Grant rather than sort of spurning him which the previous generation certainly did especially in well in certain areas anyway yeah I mean I recall I used to manage an occult bookshop um, in the 90s and uh, the Kenneth Grant books would sort of be on the top shelf above the Crowley books and it was very much a matter of like these are the books for the serious adepts. Uh, and I think the fact that in many respects, a lot of the material in Kenneth Grant's books is not readily acceptable or accessible, sorry, to the, the sort of punter on the street. It's not necessarily, if, you, if you're picking that up as your first book of magic, you're going to be really quite stumped, particularly as it doesn't actually tell you how to do specific rituals in, in quite the same way that other books do and so I think there has been a kind of inaccessibility to Kenneth Grant's work and that certainly played into the mystique and in the pre-social media time authors like Kenneth Grant and Andrew Chumley and also Carlos Castaneda to a certain degree their inaccessibility is part of one the allure and to the uh, requirement for dedicated work by practitioners to actually unpick and decipher and not just have it all served to them on a plate. And now, Grant's work hasn't ostensibly changed, but um, with the reprints of, uh, of Grant's work through Starfire, um, they certainly reach a larger audience. And so on one respect, they're just more accessible uh, in terms of getting your hands on the material itself. But I think also there has been a shift in a sort of magical sense towards the creative and to, you know, the, obviously Grant is sort of quite famous for the Lovecraft connection and, you know, Lovecraft, aside from being a problematic individual, the Lovecraft sort of concept of cosmic horror and this kind of existential... Um, engagements with non-human intelligences is something that is is certainly coming to the fore a little bit more now in the wider in the wider culture we've got all of the stuff about ufos and non-human intelligences coming in from that side although in the in the 
70s, the 80s, the 90s, there was an awful lot of like alien channelers and things like that. And the channeling is something that occultists might look at alien channelers and go, oh God, what the hell are they up to? Whereas those same people might look at occultists and (laughs) say, you're just sort of deluding yourself with this truck with demonic entities. But actually there might be something to all of these different approaches, which then again goes to sort of confirm the fact that there might not be just singular ways of engaging with the other, whatever that means, but rather many, many different ways, possibly as many different ways as there are minds to actually engage with it. It's interesting. This is another thing we talk about all the time, isn't it? The uh, the kind of occult trying to shun itself away from th- like high strangeness and kind of uh, um, science and you know, no, no, sorry, that's the wrong word. The occult trying to sh- uh, shun away from. Um, paranormal kind of any sort of supernatural kind of activity you know um, we talk about it it tries to be more like science but it sort of we feel that it kind of it kind of lends itself to these these paranormals and you know uh, supernatural I think there's I think there's a uh, a kind of division in the occult world although there's certainly crossovers between the two sort of factions of uh, experiences and people that are engaging in these practices, bending their heads, however you want to describe it, and the more academic side of things where there is an attempt to provide an academic rigour to what is going on, to map the history of things. And to a certain degree with that comes sort of an underpinning of Crowley's notion of the, the method of science, this sort of attempt to legitimise magic as a scientific activity when it quite clearly isn't uh you know magic is something that uh, i think peter carroll talks about it possibly in cyber magic or in libanel and psychonaut i can't recall uh about the fact that magic uh deals with improbabilities where science deals with probabilities um in fact there is the obvious famous arthur c clark quote any sufficiently advanced form of magic and of science will appear indistinguishable from magic and then Peter Carroll presents the reverse of that as equally true, that any sufficiently advanced form of magic would appear indistinguishable from science, i.e. any system of magic that you could establish that had such verifiable results so consistently as scientific method strives to prove would just be a science. That there, that a division between sort of science and, uh, and magic kind of occurs potentially from the from natural philosophy onwards and an attempt to try and legitimize magic through a scientific eye might actually lead to uh, ongoing frustrations if i think of um this is kind of pushing it out there slightly that uh, television series the um secret of skinwalker ranch which uh, is fantastically entertaining. And they, you know, they're trying to use scientific things to um, track down what has been previously sort of mythological realms, uh, and they're being thwarted, or they're you know they're 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 experiencing difficulties. Uh, they you know they're getting some signals that they can sort of say, oh well, look, we've got some sort of scientific record that something is going on. But at the same time, they're never quite unpacking things. And it may be because the thing itself is not inherently conducive to that scientific way of looking at things. And I think similarly with magic, there's something deeply exciting about magic. It excites us in a 
sort of imaginative psychological way and it excites us in a physiological way uh, and I'm not saying that science doesn't do those things as well but it does it in it does it in its own very creative way uh, enabling us to make sort of bizarre connections between things um, observe strange synchronicities and maybe attach meaning to those synchronicities uh, in but in all respects dealing with sort of improbable or non-causal manifestations of things uh, and I think in the modern world as um, the sort of stranglehold of science which makes me sound like a, a science naysayer which I'm certainly not the 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 total authority of science is questioned slightly then that has meant that people are beginning to question more and more things and open themselves up to more sort of what-if ideas, which is dangerous in its own right. But at the same time, I think that is partly what is driving a resurgence in magic, this idea that we can do strange things and strange things happen. Mm. Yeah, it's definitely it's interesting. I mean, the other thing that always fascinates me, and I spoke about this a little bit with Eric Wargo in the last episode, is... A kind of borderland between science and the occult it's like that's to me that's that's exciting ground you know um you know when you hear of governments um becoming involved with kind of occult type things or t occult technologies and or you you know you see this kind of um uh, like Kozarev's mirror for example yeah uh, that is something we've spoken about quite a lot it's, you know that's the russian government were um you know, doing those Kozarev mirror experiments, so well, they were funding them, and then you have things like the CIA looking at uh, the Gateway experience, and yep, and the the, uh, the the Collins elite is something that we've talked off talked about off camera, and one day we'll uh, talk about it on camera. Yeah. I think the uh, but the uh, that uh, apparent sort of revelation by um, I've forgotten the uh, forgotten the author's name Nick Redfern. Nick Redfern. Mm. I'm always telling you his name. <laughs> yeah. oh, no, I forgot it just then. But uh, the the idea that there is a shadowy group in the American government or in the you know wider American government that is engaging with sort of demonic entities that you know there's there's a sense that right on the fringes of, of institutions like governments where they have intelligence agencies that are looking for any edge over their competitor and and really pushing the sort of exploring the limits of human consciousness i mean it's fascinating and it really demonstrates that they clearly themselves aren't too bothered about whether they have the science of how it all works completely underpinned they want to just get those interactions and from that point see where the science is if there is a science and that makes it very kind of process-led um and there's, you know, we, if we go back to um, John Dee uh, in the English uh, court, uh, court astrologer, but also part of the Secret Service, the, mm -hmm. famous, the original the, 007, the original 007. <laughs> so that even even like 500 years ago, we had intelligence services engaging with activities where they're trying to get occult information or unseen information through whatever means they can um so actually we've probably collectively been engaging even under a seemingly legitimate umbrellas with this kind of activity for well arguably forever do you think then that i mean what i'm sort of interested in is is using new technologies to to perform magic essentially and um uh, we've spoken about this before but things like the monroe 
um, kind of gateway experience kind of stuff. To me, that seems like a modern technological, well, modernish technological way of astral travel. Basically, I mean, it, it has exactly the same effect as far as I can tell. I've astral traveled through occult me uh, means and I've done it now through the Monroe, um, you know, the gateway um, method and it's identical. But one takes a lot less hassle and learning than the other. One's a, a lot more automated, you know, in terms of the Monroe um, you know, audio recordings. Um, do you feel that, Not I'm not saying they should replace them, but do you think magicians should, as a point, you know, should be looking at these technologies as ways, you know, rather than sort of sticking to what Crody says or sticking to what, you know, whoever they're following or whoever their favourite, you know, magical teacher is, they should actually be saying, well, hang on, we've got these technologies now. Should we be uh, using, you know, integrating this kind of stuff in like Kozarev mirrors and, you know, this kind of thing? Should we be integrating those into our, you know, our main magical practices a bit more? Well, you know, I was just sort of saying about magic being a sort of realm of the improbable and science being a realm of the probable and that and sort of, you know, ostensibly arguing for them being different areas. But that doesn't mean that I think that we should hold back from working with anything that increases the probability of something being successful. So to that regard, certainly, I think, you know, mentioning that, you know, humanity has changed over the last hundred years or so certainly we have developed technologically um both our sciences but also our psychology understanding um the sort of human hormone systems and this kind of thing understanding how psychotherapy or you know creating things like psychotherapy um and hypnosis and you know sort of diving into some of these things that could sort of border onto occult territory and people from outside occult spheres are using similar sorts of techniques for um, helping empower people or improve their lives and so forth. And I think things that were maybe slowly developed rituals that, that helped elevate consciousness in certain ways, now we have certain abilities to, to understand and measure what's actually going on in terms of brain chemistry, uh, how long we have to engage in a specific practice can be measured more specifically with sort of like blood pressure and heart rate and then um, serotonin or dopamine sort of levels and that sort of thing, which gives us gives us ways to uh, understand a little bit more of what we're doing and in the process potentially fine-tune the effectiveness of that. So this is this is something that sort of comes into play a lot in my uh, ritual research and then in the ritual work that I that I do with people when I run courses and so forth. Is that embracing the fields that are outside ritual and looking at what is going on within those that might inform uh, our understanding of things so that we can refine our rituals and that we can be a little bit more we can increase the probability of certain aspects, even if we can't uh, in necessarily know exactly what it is, where we're going. Um, so I do personally think that we should be embracing embracing these things, or certainly exploring them. And I think I think there is a validity to the fact that there are tried and tested techniques for things that have been slowly developed and and. I think in our need to incorporate or explore new technological elements doesn't necessarily mean that we should be reckless about what we're doing. 
But I'm, uh, I think I mentioned this to you probably a few months ago. We were talking about Dion Fortune. We were talking about Dion Fortune books, and I was saying that my favourite Dion Fortune book that I read as a lad was The Goatfoot God. And in The Goatfoot God, um, the protagonist, I've forgotten their name, is looking to summon Pan, and he builds this kind of folly of a, of Greek architecture in order to evoke Pan. And my memory fails me slightly, but I think it doesn't work. And, and Or he has some revelation where um, he then rebuilds his temple and it has sort of chrome neon strip lighting which you know to us is now ghastly stuff but but back then it was sort of cutting edge technology and it made me kind of reflect back on um things like certain kind of witchcraft traditions where we might have in the modern world the creation of um corn dollies or you know some of these sort of totemic sort of objects that connect people to these practices that date back hundreds of years thousands of years speculatively um, but if we think to what the witches were engaging with in pagan 500 years ago you know a, a bunch of time ago they weren't using they were using what was effectively cutting edge tools for them uh, and nowadays, when we're using those same tools, we're maybe embracing a traditional legacy of symbolic sort of values. But there is also the scope for using modern tools. You know, we have. If I, I I'm thinking of a corn dolly because you know it's made up of made up of strands of corn bound together into a human figure. And we have things like wires now cables that that are things that we design to actually pass current through to transmit power and i'm not suggesting that we stop making corn dollies and make wire dollies instead but but at the same time i'm i'm certainly playful with that idea of of what's going on you know we have we live in a, a world that has an entirely new type of materiality to it and and with that has come technology that enables us to do certain things so if I am conducting a funeral, and a funeral, you might argue, doesn't hasn't changed for certainly in England, funeral sort of is fairly standard certainly since the Victorian times, but we still have microphones there, and we still use lighting, and you know there's little buttons you press to open curtains and things. So technology seeps into our rituals now. Whether that technology is there as a dynamic part of the ritual, you could argue that a microphone, if it enables everyone to hear what's going on then they're able to engage with that ritual more and the ritual of the funeral is potentially more potent for more people because they're actually able to engage with it. And so there you see a very sort of peripheral use of technology. But I think also given the potential advances that are in the sort of side areas that are often other sort of Fortean weird sort of areas or these government sort of pseudo-legitimate areas of research, you know, there there is this sort of like, well, what happens if we tap into this and we use this? Can we use this particular type of mirror or something like that in our rituals? And does that affect, enhance, diminish the actual quality of the experience that we have and either the information or the capabilities we derive as a result of it? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? It's uh I mean, I think that a lot of people 
don't like to do that because they're wrapped up in the kind of romance of of the thing you know they there's a kind of romance isn't there to going back to the old ways and doing it the way that Crowley did it or the way that you know the old pagans did it or the you know the, the witches of yore or whatever you know <laughs> did it it's uh i think i was and actually weirdly i made this strange connection the other day i was watching um videodrome the david cronenberg film and i watched an interview afterwards with him and he said that he actively didn't want to do gothic horror. He didn't want to. He wanted to take all the trappings of horror and put it into the you know, almost bland modern environments and to see what kind of what happened. And it's kind of this, in, in a way, it's a similar thing, isn't it? it? It's kind of it's removing the kind of trappings, the aesthetic trappings of old, you know, old magical practice, and kind of throwing that into this kind of more modern setting and you know technological setting. I think there's. I think it um, on one level it really boils down to your reason for actually engaging in these activities, and certainly the perpetuation of traditions or engaging in uh, old practices, even you know fifty years ago, or practices that you perceive to be you know, from ancient Greece or whatever. They have uh, they they have a value to themselves, but they also have a value of giving people a sense of place and a sense of community and a sense of continuity. And those are extremely important things for us. And in terms of the sort of simplicity, I'm, I mean, I'm not suggesting that we just ditch all ritual and we just have surrounded by sort of techno wizardry, because I'm also aware that, you know, something that the more of this technology we have, the more we are seduced by the, you know, uh, the simple life that lovely afternoon that you spend with someone out on the in the countryside just breathing in the air and looking at the site and you know and we think like well we actually really value these simple old very primal fundamental kind of things so i you know so i think we shouldn't necessarily ditch all of these magical traditions by any stretch and certainly the aesthetic appeal of them has value because something that that has an aesthetic appeal helps seduce the mind helps uh grab the attention and hold the curiosity and and make you create the or sort of stoke the desire to engage with it and then that's a really good thing i think if you as i certainly have done i've stripped rituals right down to try and look at what the sort of for want of a better word, the sort of technological elements present in a ritual are. And if you sort of strip everything away, then actually you still lose an awful lot of the qualities. So if we think to um, Timothy Leary's set and setting for psychedelic use, the sort of difference that he was uncovering between just putting someone in a lab condition on the drug and then someone being in a much more sort of sympathetic and conducive environment produces two separate experiences even though the drug is producing the sort of same chemical reaction or the chemical experience in the brain and so you know the the set and setting of a ritual or the set and setting of a ritual tradition is really significant because that helps uh helps build a context not just of sort of meaningful symbols but actually of uh sort of congruent body of something that brings with it this sense of uh, locating yourself within something rather than removing yourself from things and there's something deeply powerful about that and that should definitely be you know recognized and engaged with so 
So, yeah, I mean, I'm going to talk an awful lot of hypocrisy and <laughs> contradictions as we discuss this, Ken, because I definitely see the value of both things. And again, so I'm sort of saying it depends on what your motivation for for engaging in. Yeah. It's all about intent, isn't it? Really? If, you want to, if you want to contact non-human in, non intelligences, then there are magical ways of doing it. There are sort of trance ways of doing it. There are DMT. There, you know, there's there's a whole variety of ways that that can be achieved, not just one specific way. And certainly it's worth, for my money, exploring the sort of overlap of these things. And, and more specifically, what can uh, magical practitioners learn from adjacent fields? And I think that sort of follows up on something you were saying earlier about this, uh, the potential stagnation or, and everyone will hate me for saying this, but the sort of the potential for navel gazing that comes with certain aspects of magical tradition where people just buy books on magic and they just focus on, on what's going on. And maybe that's an unfair statement and maybe it's not actually true, but certainly as I've got older over the years, I buy fewer and fewer occult books and more and more books on uh, all sorts of peripheral subjects because I want to find out what it is that is working for other people and how that information, um, scientific or otherwise, can be brought into rituals to make them more potent for magical practitioners. Yeah, that's the interesting back to that borderland again, isn't it? It's, it's the uh, I'm, I'm really fascinated by that. They're kind of, yeah, it's interesting. So, um, one thing that we were talking about is with rituals is and new technologies is should magicians be making their own rituals i mean we were talking earlier about how well i mean we always talk about this but how certain people are very strictly a crody based magician or you know a golden dawn based magician and they only follow those those kinds of uh you know ordained rituals you know the the law as it were of these things um but should more magicians be sort of designing and creating their own rituals to uh you know engage with magic certainly from my own point of view i think that there was uh for me i engaged heavily in uh crowley uh crowleyan occultism uh grimoire traditions golden dawn uh and so forth in my in my early years and that was provided in Crowley most specifically and magic in theory and practice above all things, a really great grounding in fundamentals of magic um, and, you know, with uh, the golden bow, the sort of the, the introduction of magical thinking and how magical thinking actually works. I think that, that there is great use in having these things as a foundation of of how we go about magic but then for me personally wanting to investigate rituals and how they work it was also important to devise rituals and and test the actual sort of mechanisms of rituals just to see what works and um, what doesn't work either for me or for for other people as well and i think there's a sort of you know crowley made up his rituals uh, and one might argue, well, he was uh, an adept when he was making them or he was a master when he was making them. And that really raises for me one of the sort of principal ideas. Well, in magical orders and things, there may be a whole bunch of degrees or grades or steps that you pass through. For me, there are really three steps. 
And all of them boil down to these three steps in one form or another. And that is um, the initiate, the adept, and the master. And the initiate level is very much a technological technique-based point where one is learning techniques, uh, following, following rules and disciplines, and building a symbolic myth structure that can be then transferred between different uh, different rituals and different practices. But I think invariably um, at the sort of adept kind of level, one starts engaging with these practices in accord with one's own proclivities, the the, the things that the things that actually work for you, the I think of the word adept like the word ad- adapt um, and the adaptability that someone who is not necessarily an occult adept, you might be a, a, a sports person who is an adept at your particular sport, then then come you see with anyone that is extremely skilled in the thing that they're doing, their ability to improvise and respond and edit and create starts becoming more prominent so where the initiate in my sort of three three step thing was a technician the adept is an artist who has if we take the uh you know a standard drafts person artist as an example they you know there may be years and years of learning how to draw and developing the techniques of drawing but then their particular artistry emerges when they start injecting their particular flavour, and that is about their relationship with their art and the, and the art as a medium or an expression of their engagements with the world. Uh, so should should we be making our own rituals? Absolutely. Should we be knowing what we're doing with our rituals? Yeah, mostly. Uh, I do think there is there is reason to explore, but I think there's also reason to ground yourself in stable, disciplined practice, certainly to begin with. Um, but I also don't think that that it stands still. So I don't think that any system. But I think as soon as you've got a system written down on paper, then it is in some respects becoming a thing of the past. Because these things, these things have to change, and they have to evolve. Because we change and evolve, not you know individually through our lives, as we go on our own magical journeys, but then collectively as societies. I think um, I agree with what you're saying completely. Um, but I, 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 I think intent is the biggest thing, isn't it? Really, it's like um, I think you can be super experimental with rituals. You can create your own rituals and everything. But I think intent is the key. Is if you have. Um, some kind of intent built into what it is you're doing then you can experiment and you can try new things that you don't necessarily know you know uh the outcome but, but as long as you have a kind of built-in intent at the at, do you see what i mean it's a- i do certainly so if so with intent uh, the way that i understand intent and the way that i write about it certainly as jack Macbeth and in the sphere of sorcery is that you have two spheres, uh, two circles, one within the other. A circle of power, power being simply your capacity to influence. Uh, and the circle of power sort of describes the, the totality of your capacity to influence or 
or arguably be influenced at any one point. And then within that is uh, a smaller circle of intent. This is the thing that we consciously move around uh, and the thing that we push reality with as we impose our intent or as we harness our intent to cause change in the world. And I think if we have a very clear intent of what we're doing, it certainly makes it much easier to move towards or to, to bring manifestation from that intent. And along with that, much easier to ascertain if it was successful in its implementation and manifestation. If we perform magic with a very broad intent, then how do we know what's actually happened as a result of that? And how do we know what was just shit that happened at the same time uh and so it, and and also the, the the question of intent again that carries out beyond uh beyond the occult sphere although perhaps uh as occultists we kind of we're dealing with intent and and the will or whatever would be sort of a similar kind of term but this uh but works that when humans as people that wield intent when we see humans using intent effectively, then there is something for us to learn about that and something that we can potentially bring back into our magical work. When someone has acts with full congruence, that you know, they, they're using their intent and every single part of them is insistent upon that intent. There is a focus of their mind, focus of their eyes, focus of their actions. The likelihood that they will be successful in their intention is much higher than someone who isn't and 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 so an awful lot of magic and ritual is ultimately about sculpting refining and shifting that intent around the result then being that it may be that in order to move and manifest your intent there's an awful lot more ways of doing that than simply following a specific ritual that claims some exclusivity to that matter. Well, it's interesting you said that because we were just before the interview we were talking about this, um, and this brings us back round to uh, to the Ulysses Black Initiative, I think. But I, I found this really nice quote. I think one um, when it comes to the Holy Guardian Angel, I think a lot of people, especially a, a lot of thelemites that I've dealt with <laughs> over the years, seem to think that the only way that you can achieve knowledge and conversation is by doing the Abramelum ritual. Uh, and that seems to be, a. I mean, I, I listen to podcasts with people that aren't um, kind of active thelemites where they're just talking about the subject. They'll say, well, the only way you can do it is by doing this abramelin ritual. And, you know, when you actually look at the the technology, well, the technique and the stuff you need to actually properly do that ritual, you need to be fairly wealthy and <laughs> you need to have a building, you know, in a certain rooms in certain, you know, it's 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 a very potentially expensive um operation so it kind of makes it fairly elitist but um i found this really nice quote that kind of um from crowley that basically says the complete opposite he says it is impossible to lay down precise rules by which a man may attain to the knowledge and conversation of his holy guardian angel for that is a particular secret of each one of us a secret not to be told or or even divined by any other whatever his grade it is the holy of holies whereof each man is his own um high priest 
and none none knoweth the name of his brother's God or the right that invokes him. Which I think, it, and that kind of brings us into your holy guardian angel experience, um, which is kind of what the book's about. You know, the voyage of Ulysses back. Really, when you drill down to it, a lot of it is is this HDA experience. Absolutely. Um, and um, you certainly didn't do the Abramelin ritual to uh, to to find no, your HDA. No, I did. I mean, I did. I did study the Abramelin ritual a lot when I was a teenager. Certainly on that side of things, on you know, with regard to the Abramelin and the uh, claims that the only way you can uh, encounter your HGA is through that ritual, would also be a way of saying: Does that mean that literally no one in humanity managed to do it before that ritual existed? Uh, and it actually drives to one of my interests in magic and ritual, and that is in the sort of specificity. If there is only one specific combination of activities that will produce that specific effect, is that uh, a, something that is universally accessible, or is that literally just the result of that particular combination? And if you change that combination by a small amount... Do you get a very slightly different result or does it just not work at all? A bit like a sort of computer program that it either works seamlessly or it just crashes. My feeling and certainly my experience is that, no, I guess much like that Quoley quote. It's actually weirdly, it's not usually, it's not so much Felomites anymore. I used to get it all the time. People say, well, the only way you couldn't do it is by doing the Abramelin. But um you hear it a lot on podcasts, especially where it's like you know people talking about Crowley. I think there's one. I think there's one element in the grimoire traditions where there is. It's extremely taxing to perform the rituals, and I don't know whether part of that is to ensure failure, whether that is to make a ritual so impossible to do that uh, you just can't do it. Or rather, that if if you do manage to get it all together to actually perform this extremely hard ritual, then that itself has required such a refinement of intent that the results will actually work. I'm aware that um, that it's kind of a weird taboo subject to discuss uh, magical successes um, and attainments in inverted commas. You know, an awful lot of Thelemic magic, if not all of it, revolves around this notion of acquiring the knowledge and conversation of your holy guardian angel. And yet, very few people that I've spoken to have ever had that experience. And that makes me question why that is. Does Is that because they don't do the work? Uh, and haven't put the legwork in to get it done? Is that because they don't believe that it's actually possible? And the lack of belief means that the intent is kind of muffled? Or do, in some cases, people actually do it and then not necessarily realise it is the thing that they were trying to do because it isn't being framed in exactly that same way or because they have a belief that it has to be done a certain way and so any kind of huge personal breakthrough like that is not necessarily the same thing. Um, I I recall in sort of from 1997 to about 2007 
actually, um, that I was primarily focused on, uh, I used to describe it as sorcery with my left hand and magic with my right hand. Um, and one was a sort of broader external kind of form and the other was something that happened privately and covertly. But in both of them, there was uh, an attempt to find the fullness of self um, and to get in touch with whether it be your high, holy guardian angel, your higher self, or, um, or simply the other, as I was referring to it uh, in sorcery. An idea of um, the, the ultimate version of yourself and a combination of your sort of waking terrestrial self with any broader aspects that might be out there in the sort of unseen cosmos. Um, and I did an awful lot of sort of groundwork towards all of that kind of activity. And then there came a point in 2008, I think it was, off the top of my head, 2008, I decided to build a uh, Holy Guardian Angel machine, which was uh, a psychomantium. And that's what you referred to in the book as the device. That is the device in the yeah. book. And there were, I, I've got a whole bunch of stuff that I will be putting together about this particular thing. But uh, the sort of brief synopsis was that I'd been working with black mirrors uh, for sorcerous means, scrying them, sort of reflecting on them, and uh, otherwise sort of evoking into them over a course of about... Yes, sort of from, I think, yeah, 1997 onwards. And then I hatched this plan to build a chamber of Black Mirror. Now, Psychomantium is a, I think, kind of Victorian magical chamber in which you hang Black Mirrors on the walls. I think Crowley might have done it in, they might have done it up at Beliskin, but he might have also done it in a room in German Street, maybe. Um where you hang you hang mirrors on the walls and then you perform a bunch of magic and shit happens in the mirrors. And I thought, why don't I just build a chamber of just black mirror? Floors, walls, ceiling. And so I built this large box. I think it, off the top of my head, I think it's a sort of four foot by four foot by eight foot box. And around the outsides of those, uh, the outside panels of the box, I painted black and white checkered um, optical illusions of depth. And, um, and then inside the chamber, I put tiny little white LEDs in the eight corners of the chamber so that it could illuminate myself when I went inside. And the idea was that I would perform um, a bunch of magical activities devoted to summoning myself uh, in all of my incarnations, summoning myself from my death, from my future, yeah, in sort of all parallel realms, the full possibility of me into one place. Uh, and this would be signified sort of ritually through the senses by this sort of infinite reflections of myself in the black mirror. Um, and 
I made this uh, I made this device. It was situated in the middle of a public gallery. Uh, I gave a talk about it, and then I went into it. Um, and I'm not going to reveal exactly what happened inside. Suffice to say, it didn't go according to plan. As things often don't appear to do when you do. Uh, Indeed, like I say appear. I mean, that's a big. A big asterisk there, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, kind of what happened. Um, the 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 bit that I'll mention is that, uh, and I'm you know this is a this is a physical property. As a result of these small white LEDs illuminating my body, the brightness of the LEDs was clearly enough to also overpower my ability to see the reflections. And instead of seeing myself reflected in all directions, there was just nothing there. It was just blackness and these tiny points of light the leds themselves were reflected into infinity and so i came out of that chamber um this was on the back of yeah a, a whole bunch of of other work um that uh involving various sort of shamanic ordeals um but i came out of that thinking oh <laughs> Well, oh, okay, back to the drawing board. Um, until 40 days and 40 nights later, when um, a voice uh, spoke up in my head. And this is, you know, oh God, he's gone mad. Uh, and certainly, you know, that, that question sort of arises. But there was there was a voice in my head that didn't speak with my, my voice, my accent and, and my sort of intonation. It was a different voice and it felt external to me. Um, so much like hearing voices, uh, which isn't something that I can say that has particularly happened to me in the past... Uh, and then I began to have a discussion with this uh, this voice, um, and it told me stuff. It told me when to do things, when not to do things, and one might think like, here is a, you know, I, I've I've I don't know, got some sort of spirit in my head or something of this nature that is going to make tell me to go down the road and kill someone or anything like that and this voice never never told me to do anything uh that that was a risk to myself or other people it would always just provide a continuous kind of conversation where it would just sort of tell me things and i sort of would say in a very like tentative way that there was a kind of psychic property to it uh it would tell me that someone was about to walk around the corner um or or such like or if i was faced with a decision of what i needed to do of some sort of importance i'd say what do i do this or this and it would immediately say this and bizarrely it was always right and I'm aware that everything that I'm saying sounds extremely kind of arrogant and maybe delusional, partly because I think that actually in the occult world, we're just not really supposed to talk about these kinds of things. And yet we're all supposed to be working towards them. 
Uh, and so I'm quite happy to talk about it because also I'm quite kind of unflinching in the certainty of the experience that I had. Well, I think it's, it's another thing we talk about, which is, you know, it's very difficult to find any you know accounts of this kind of stuff. It's like um, our, our friend Adrian said, we've seen the recipe, show us the meal. You know, we don't really uh, often, you know, hear about the actual results. It's like this weird taboo. And uh, I don't know why. It's- yeah. Well, with, 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 with that, with that experience came a degree of um, personal empowerment a degree of much more uh, keen sense of focusing and directing my intent. And I'm not meaning this in just sort of an abstract way, but I mean on a literal day-to-day basis. Um, And uh, various friends had remarked to each other and to, to, um, to me eventually that one of the very interesting things about Ulysses Black uh, and Ulysses Black is the name of this entity which I completely took as my own name uh, legally for all purposes as uh, through the Ulysses Black initiative I just sought uh, ongoing integration with this thing they would say that the frustrating or the curious thing is that Ulysses Black was never wrong uh, and I don't, again, mean that in any kind of arrogant sense, um, but it was always kind of forthright. There was never any messing around and there was also, there was never any bullshit. Um, and, you know, if I said, oh, I'm going to get an ice cream, Ulysses Black, which ice cream should I get? Uh, it would just say, it doesn't matter, have whichever one you want. It's completely, you know, it was completely indifferent to that sort of thing. But if it was, if it was more loaded questions, um, what sort of decision should I take at any one point in my life, then it was always unequivocal and without hesitation, do that one. And it always seemed to pan out. And was I setting myself up for a massive fall? No, because no massive fall ever came. And, you know, was I being seduced by a sort of a seemingly benevolent voice uh, that was... You're going to lead me astray and eventually tell me to do some terrible thing. Well, no, that just never happened. It was always there. It was it was present. It was responsive, and um, it always had my back. But in a in a sort of big picture kind of way, there was there was no sort of pettiness or other, the only you know the closest thing to pettiness would it saying to me, forget it or you know stop stop doing that. It's irrelevant. Um, and would be just putting me in my place, um, but always, always to my own benefit. And uh, and by when I say to my own benefit, I don't also mean to the exploitation of others either. So the Ulysses Black Initiative, as I called it, and is the the sort of subject matter of the voyage of Ulysses Black, was the the book begins at the point at which I've had this experience. There's a little bit of prehistory as I refer to it, you know, sort of saying how I got there. And then how I set about a year's worth of intensive uh, magical Exploration. uh, explorations in which I sought to integrate and become uh, Ulysses Black. Um, and I remember someone saying, sort of, you know, what character is Ulysses Black? And it was just like, no, there's no character. 
And by that, I don't mean that Ulysses Black had no character, but there was no drive for me to present any kind of affectation or to try and project anything onto it where I could. And so I was using the term authenticity as a sort of guiding stone for helping me determine the qualities of my engagements. There's sort of a sincerity and an authenticity and a striving for a lack of bullshit. And actually, this goes back to um, one of the formative experiences that led up to this, which was a, um, a, a, a ritual flesh pulling, which is kind of like a flesh hanging, but instead of being suspended from something on hooks, you're, I had hooks put through my chest and they were tied to a yew tree, the tree of death. And then the idea is that you walk backwards until the strings go taut. And instead of just surrendering to it as you would if you were being suspended, you are going back to the furthest of your extremities and teetering back and forth on this like knife edge of the most amount of sensation you can experience and this kind of fluctuation back and forth. And I remember at the time thinking to myself, because I'd heard all sorts of like, oh, you see all these wonderful visions and stuff like that. And then thinking to myself, oh, yeah, when I can see satyrs and nymphs dancing around in the woods. Uh, and I had this kind of wake up call, like a shamanic kind of wake up call where it just, there was just like, no, you can't. You can see a lot of blood. You can feel a lot of pain. And you can see intense color you know the grass is a little bit more vibrant and and all of that kind of thing but that was very much uh me oscillating on a point uh tied to the tree of death where i was suddenly dropping an awful lot of occult fantasy uh, and just tapping into the reality of the experience and this sort of ties into ordeals uh, and so forth, but also would would go on to sculpt or be informative of the, the rest of the experience that I would shortly have with Ulysses Black. So is Ulysses Black uh, a figment of my imagination? I don't know. Is it a compartmentalised part of myself that signifies, you know, the, the best of me? Or... Is it actually a contact with a non-human intelligence uh, that is separate to me? Well, over the course of that year, I engaged in a whole bunch of pro uh, processes so that it wouldn't be separate to me. Uh, and it, in doing so, it makes it very hard to then determine whether it is... I mean, I think Crowley might have said something about, you know, sometimes, you know, it, whether a demon is truly external to you or part of your mind kind of doesn't matter in regards to the fact that you are engaging with it and the way in which you're engaging with it and whether it actually is beneficial to you. And so uh, I, you know, in, in part of me, I think this is like my higher self. Um, and this is the sort of best of me because I can see that it, that elements of it draw on the experiences that were immediately leading me to it. But at the same time, there is an otherness to it that I can't deny the fact that the conversations that would uh, occur were not, um, what's the word, 
solipsistic. Uh, some, some, you know, I, I wasn't talking to myself there. There was, uh, there was definitely my conscious thoughts thinking, blah, 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 I'm going to say this thing, and then and a voice coming back with fully formed statements that were just seemingly out of the blue. Um, and this went on for years... But I'm also not going to be arrogant enough to say that it continued forever. Uh, and I know that uh, at certainly at sort of times of need, I have been able to just sort of reach out and speak to that part of myself that is Ulysses Black, um, and it's still my name. Um, but it's but I don't have the uh, the the sort of running commentary. Commentary is not the right word. The the running advice. So did I meet you halfway through that? When did I? I met you in two thousand and eight. I think. Yeah. So that was pretty much the same time. Yeah. So oh god, maybe it's Ken putting voices into my head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's actually me. You summoned me into <laughs> into corporeal form. <laughs> so when did when did um what was there a specific thing that made the voice kind of stop as it were you know um you said it was you know a conversation that was going on for a while but it it stopped at some point what 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 do you think caused that was it the thing that ends the book the circle no so 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 the voice went on for um about 5 years and you know this is where i happily embrace the sort of sincerity of what I'm discussing because well, you did I mean I met you as Ulysses Black I mean yeah the voice was there for in that sort of very tangible form for about um five years and I think the the sort of the the honest answer is that um I engaged in it it gave me a very specific kind of life task which um I embraced and which is not a problematic life task at all uh and the that uh in part involved a this campaign working of invoking ritual itself as a god form into myself so that I could continue uh engaging with uh my studies in ritual but also um you know just some shit happened in life one of my friends one of my dear friends one of our dear friends died um and while there was sort of ulysses black assistance in that the what happened was there was a whole bunch of just mundane life that got in the way of uh, a degree of my work and the need to earn money and things like that and you know and so quite sort of honestly the my ability to maintain that sort of connection through certain diligent work just sort of ebbed and i find myself in this delightful and sort of scary position of thinking well you know now what do i do about that you know how do i re-establish the that level of connection there's the connection is certainly still there and is still there when it when needed but at the same time it's not there as much and i have to ask myself 
does it need to be there as much? Uh, is you know are these things certainly these things in Crowleyan sort of implications are that you know these are permanent attainments and you get there and it's there forever. You cross the abyss and you're across the abyss forever, etc. I'm not entirely sure that that's the case. I think you know we are wetware organisms that are constantly changing and and our attention and our priorities shift and so these sorts of things shift when um uh when the sort of ulysses black work in that regard reached its apex i was then sort of given given a task that was just like right now get on with it i think in uh the in the book of the law there is be it a controversial term that um thou hast no right but to do thy will was kind of the catch 22 of the knowledge and conversation of the holy guardian angel you find out what your true will is but then you have no choice but to carry on with it unless anything that you, anything that you're doing that isn't furthering that will is a distraction from it um, and is a deviation you're effectively letting yourself down. And I suspect that um, aspects of life got in the way for me and that to a certain degree I let some things slip, um, which I'm quite happy to admit. I'm not happy that it happened, but certainly happy to admit that as, as a failing. And uh, I still have the work and the mission and I'm still engaged in that on a daily basis uh, in the public and private spaces um yeah yeah so in the book you talk about explorations that you sort of give i think it's five or six explorations in the or is it seven it's nine nine oh okay well i'm uh, i'm terrible i was literally reading it this morning is it nine it might be seven <laughs> we're checking the book <laughs> i wrote the book 12 years ago yeah there you go um so what was the kind of oh it is the expression line there we go so i was wrong okay so what was the actual um the kind of core point of the explorations if that makes sense i know i know that word itself point makes a uh you know an appearance itself so uh, absolutely yeah. um so so i set myself uh, created a procedurally based um process based method of uh, incorporating Ulysses Black into my life so rather than now just looking at existing magic books of what you're supposed to do and by the way there basically isn't anything that tells you what you're supposed to do once you've had this experience because the experience is the thing that tells you what to do uh, and I let that sort of guide me so I set about creating a um, series of activities by which I could um, immerse myself into, uh, into my life and immerse Ulysses Black into my life and immerse myself into Ulysses Black. So, for example... Um, the, even the, the sort of, you know, looking at the word Ulysses... Um, Ulysses is the uh, Roman version of the name Odysseus. Now, um, Odysseus was the Greek hero who was of earthly parentage. He doesn't have; it wasn't a demigod. 
And this was a fascinating thing. You know, Ulysses or Odysseus achieved what he achieved through his own wit and ingenium. Um, and part of, you know, the, the famous uh, text, The Odyssey, is the story of Odysseus's attempt to get home. So I'm from a tiny island, um, smaller likely than Ithaca itself. Um, and uh, as a result of being from this tiny island, I know every square inch of the island. Because when you're from a tiny island and you're growing up, you can't just get on your bike and go to another island. In the same way, if you're from a little village, you can just cycle over to another village. As a result, if you're from a very confined geographic area, you get to really know that geographic area. And I identified this island as my Ithaca. Um, and so I decided that I would take my partner at the time to the island and we would go to the lighthouse at the end of the island. And the lighthouse for me is sort of very clearly symbolising the, um, the Cyclops in, in the Odysseus myth. And from that point, I would blindfold myself. And I've done a lot of blindfold-based work. Yeah, it, happens, it comes up a lot in the book, doesn't it? The blindfold. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right. Yes, okay. <laughs> um, and so, in fact, the blindfold, the fabric, the felt from the blindfold is used in the seams of all of the panels of the psychomantium to prevent light bleeding in. It's the same felt, and I was then using that as a blindfold. So is that talismanic in a way? Then? Absolutely yeah, talismanic. Yeah. So I then blindfolded myself um, and with my partner, she had a map of the island uh, and a camera. And we decided that what we would do is we would try and walk around the periphery, the entire periphery of the island with me blindfolded and I would lead the way. And then every 10 minutes we would stop, mark on the map where we were, and she would take a photograph of And it was like before, in front and behind, wasn't it, or something? Or, or? Um, no, I think she just took a picture of what was in front of us. Just what was in front, okay. She might have taken some other pictures. I'm not sure I had a blindfold on. <laughs> um, but so, so as we would progress around the island, we would be walking along and I would sort of be saying, okay, I think we're coming up to a turning on the right. And she would say, yeah, okay, there's a turning on the right. And this became a... Um, a conversation between the two of us. I knew the island intimately, and as a result, all of the place names and even the names of just like weird rocks and and military fortifications and so forth. And she, similarly, having never been to the island, didn't know any of those things. And so we were having this conversation as we would. She would be trying to describe where we were. If I we were at a point at which I said, "Look, tell me where we are." Okay, we're going left or whatever. And and curiously, you know, it took us about, well, it, it took us seven hours and 24 minutes to get around the entire island. It's a very small island. Um, and I was blindfolded the uh, entire time virtually. There was one point where we met this this old man with his dog that I was told looked like Father Christmas. And we sat and we had some sandwiches and I kept the blindfold on, and I just literally never saw him. Um, and we, as we worked our way around the island, we got to the harbour area. And as we were approaching the harbour area, unbeknownst to me, as we were walking along the side of the road, my partner had actually led us across to the other side of the road. 
Um, and so as we were walking along, when she said, there's a car coming, get out of the road, I stepped to what I thought was off the side of the road, which turned out to be right into the middle of the road, right in front of this car. The car slammed on its brakes. There was a whole bunch of shrieking. Uh, and reluctantly, I had to take the blindfold off because my partner was freaking out. I wasn't freaking out because I was oblivious to everything <laughs> until after the fact. But I agreed then that I'd keep the blindfold off as we walked across the harbour, which is a heavily trafficked area and, you know, understandably dangerous. And there was an instance of us, um, I think we actually popped into a pub and had half a pint of beer because there was some seriously rattled nerves. And it also gave us the opportunity to sit and discuss like, ah, oh, have we just fucked this up and have we f has has it all failed again a bit like the sort of psychomantium there is you know something's happened it's derailed things and is this a failure although what it was was it was a point of reflection and like you'd said earlier you know perceived failures aren't necessarily failures because it was a brush with death although i didn't see it coming uh, and it then opened up an interesting avenue of conversation between myself and my partner and after we finished the pint of uh, the half pint, it was, I put the blindfold went back on, and we continued the rest of the way around the island. There was one point when we stopped at a circus, and you know, there isn't actually ever normally a circus on the island, so we stopped at uh, we were milling around this big top. Very odd. I didn't see any of it, and eventually we got back to the lighthouse seven hours and twenty four minutes later, and so this was an example of a. Uh, an action for me that was about me finding, um, me relocating myself in my spiritual home, which is this island, and quite what this island means to me and what this sense of place and home and belonging means to me in the same way that Odysseus was striving to get to his uh, Ithaca and what that meant for him. Um, and so this sort of brings us on to a lot of these explorations in mythology, as I call them, because they, and we were talking about intent earlier. So as they were kind of process-led and procedurally led, I wasn't necessarily uh, setting out with an intent of, I will do this thing because I want something specific to happen. It was more like, I can do, I can subject myself to this protracted ordeal uh, with certain factors in mind and stuff will happen to me in the process. Do you see what I mean? I think that's really, that's one thing I learned when I started doing ritual magic and ceremonial magic, whatever you want to call it. Um, ordeal is super important. It's the, you know, it's the thing in a way. I mean, even you know, um, without revealing anything in particular, like, you know, an initiation um, into certain orders. <laughs> I think in, in most of them, actually, the first initiation you take, your your deal is you're throwing your body into the, the, the fate of strangers in some cases, you know, um, the blindfold comes up again, you know, that often plays a part in these things. And But the ordeal, and it's the sort of going through the ordeal and then analysing the result of that ordeal seems to be a massive part of magical uh absolutely i think um for me ordeals and rituals go hand in hand they're not necessarily the same thing and they can involve each other so where rituals are predominantly 
non-ordinary activities that we undertake that have, generally speaking, some sort of repetitive quality to them. They either have um, elements repeated within them or they are themselves repeated. Um, even shaking hands with people, you know, we, we repeat that same gesture over and over again and we learn to experience what, what that means. Um, ordeals tend to be singular and profoundly intense. And one of the ways that I can think of ordeals is like life-changing life events. Life-changing events that we have a degree of control over in the way that we might not have a degree of control over a near-fatal car crash that would be a deeply traumatic event that might live with us for the rest of our lives and cause us all sorts of issues that we need to work through. Uh, an ordeal is something that we have the, certainly in that sort of magical context, something that we have the power to orchestrate, even though we still have to surrender to its effects. And one of the things that rituals and ordeals do is they are ex externalizations of things which we then submit ourselves to. We make ourselves available to the ritual. We make ourselves available to the ordeal so that it can actually have an effect on us. If we made ourselves immune to them, there wouldn't really be much point in doing them. So the fact that we make ourselves available to ordeals means that they can impact us and they can impact us heavily and they can rewire the way that we think and they can massively, massively modify our behaviour very rapidly. And so unlike a car crash, which might massively modify our behaviour, even psychologically, we don't have a choice in that. With an ordeal, we can shape and sculpt to a certain degree the type of way that we want to be impacted, even though we are going to surrender to it and let it actually give us the impact that it's going to give us. And so a lot of the explorations in the Voyage of Ulysses Black or the Ulysses Black Initiative involved subjecting myself to these ordeals and sort of setting up uh, a, uh, an approximate composition or architecture of symbols that resonated with the sort of broad intent of what I was doing and then engaging fully into the process of it itself and just letting it do its thing rather than me continuing to dictate what I expect to get out of it. We, we've spoken about Helia before, the, TV, you know, the, um, the internet series um, by Greg and Dana. The, um, one of the things that's really interesting is that they have the, a kind of intent to find this goblin or whatever and um, the intent fails them. Well, at least they feel it fails them, but actually it's sort of the kind of ordeal they go through, which I suppose in their case is going to find the, you know, the, these goblins in a cave, actually leads to something else. And I think that's a big part of the magical act, isn't it? I find often that when I do ritual at home or whatever, or wherever I'm doing it, um, I'll put myself through an ordeal and the initial intent won't necessarily be met but something else will happen. <laughs> uh, and that, that seems to be quite common with, with, with magic, doesn't it? That... I think so. And I, th I mean, I, I developed a, a sort of uh, a methodology around the idea of the blind spot. So, um, you know, if you're, if you're wanting to study a thing, you can really scrutinise that thing and take it apart and put it back together and look at the, all the different combinations of that thing. 
And sometimes, um, you know, if we're engaged in creative work, so when I'm involved in uh, creative mentoring, this comes up a lot. Sometimes, you know, you can just bash your head against the screen, as it were, and mash your face into the keyboard or whatever the phrase is, where, for the frustration of the creative block of looking at some pieces and trying to arrange them and them just not coming together how you want. Uh, and so similarly for the, um, the Voyage of Ulysses Black, I, I applied the same sort of the same principle of the blind spot, which involves working very, very thoroughly and systematically with all of the peripheral things around the subject that you're dealing with, but not looking directly at the subject. Keeping that, uh, keeping the the centre of the circle unknown, while you repeatedly build up um, all of the elements around the edge of the circle, and in that blind spot, you're creating a space for which the response can manifest. And so similarly, so if we take the really sort of like mundane level of sort of creative work, you know, similarly to get over that creative block, I would encourage people to not look at the problem itself, but just to look at all of the constituent parts on their own, separately, and just play with all of those and allow your unconscious, for want of a better term, to show you what's, how it's all going to come together. And so similarly for the explorations in mythology, I knew that what I wanted to do was integrate Ulysses Black. And so instead of just sitting there and trying to calculate how I'm going to do that, I'm going to engage in a series of process-led activities that develop a mythology within them. Um, and by mythology, I mean a vocabulary of uh, dynamic symbols that have meaning and use those dynamic symbols and recompose them and take them into subsequent explorations and just keep working at that whilst all the time dancing around the sort of unspoken heart of the circle, which then gives that space for the unknown to to emerge so in your book this is one thing i was gonna ask you the last exploration or ritual you do is um it ends with you drawing a circle and um nailing the middle of the circle could you talk to us about that particular because i found that one quite interesting like a the setup for it and b the point of what you know which is ironic because that's kind of you know what the the section's called um but what was the point of it and what was did you have a sense of finality with that one in particular? Okay, so so the because I was um, engaged in a year-long series of uh, these explorations, it then culminated with uh, an exhibition that I put on where I um, sort of curated... Uh, uh, otherwise exhibited or showed films of all of the different explorations and the ninth and final exploration was myself um, sat uh, blindfolded on a chair on a white plinth um, and this meant that as with anyone who went to the Scarlet Imprint Summer of Love, where I was similarly blindfolded for the entire... Oh, no, sorry, I was there I was staring into a black mirror for six and a half hours. In both instances, I completely actually didn't see the, <laughs> the event at all. And so for when there was this exploration, uh, this exploration nine, which was this exhibition, 
I actually missed the entire exhibition because I was blindfolded and myself exhibited. Um, but what uh, what I had done in preparation before that was I had acquired a uh, a nine inch nail. No. Um, <laughs> No direct connotation there with the band, but I'd got this enormous nail and I'd had the front end of it polished like a bullet. About six inches or four inches or so, just completely polished and trimmed down into the shape of a bullet and this small boxwood mallet. And they were being displayed on one white plinth while I was sat on the uh, this other one. Then at a certain queue when um, there was to be a live performance and so various people are congregated in the exhibition space for that, I had a team of accomplices that stripped down the exploration space, sorry, the exhibition space while I was sitting there. So again, I didn't see any of that. And then after that was done, they helped me down off the chair. They took the chair away and... Um, I removed some articles of clothing um, and I had my blindfold on still and I was given a Sharpie, black permanent marker, which had become one of my living symbols, one of the symbols from this mythology. Again, this was partly, these symbols, we can talk about them at another point, are a part of a new aesthetic that is created through this process. Um, Suffice to say, I then went and knelt behind this large plinth of which I had been sat, and I proceeded to draw uh, a circle. Now, because I knew what I was doing, so this was, you know, there was some planning involved in this, there was a contact microphone hidden on inside the plinth on one side, which meant that as the, and that was feeding to um, speakers around the space, so as I was drawing the circle, you'd get a sort of sound, um, which added a nice sort of dynamic to it. And what I was uh, seeking to do was to draw 1001 circles. Uh, now, the, the phrase 1001 is obviously popularized by the 1, tales of 1001 Arabian Nights. Um, where the term 1001 doesn't literally mean 1001, it means a number beyond count, although ironically 1001 is a number we can count. But uh, that's that's the phrase. So I was there to draw an, an endless amount of circles. And in doing this, I was again drawing these circles, much like I'd just been describing these circles, the circle of explorations, uh, and a bit like the circle of me going around the edge of the island. Um, and then, like the myth with the Cyclops, my uh, one of my accomplices handed me the hammer and one of my accomplices handed me the nail and I found the centre point of the circle and I just hammered the nail into the, into the centre of this plinth. To enormous amounts of noise, much like Odysseus stabbing the Cyclops in the eye. Um, and there's also a sort of that that was the culmination of all of my work in that period of time was this 
single hammering of a nail, reducing everything down to a notion of circularity and rotating movements and then linearity and puncturing and intent of piercing the centre of that circle, hitting the nail on its head. This also ties into um, material that was released in Howlings by Scarlet Imprint um, from 2007 or 2008 or something thereabouts, where I detailed my um, work with the book Quatub, that's how I pronounce it, Andrew Chumley text Quatub, um, which I was working with in 19, between 1995 and 1999, when back on this uh, island of my birth in 1999, on the 11th, 11 minutes past 11 on the 11th of August, there was a total solar eclipse. And solar eclipses are referenced in that book, and the book Quatub is also called The Point. Uh, and I wrote a chapter explaining that uh, the series of rituals that I did there called Getting to the Point. And there was a sort of similarity here with, again, that sort of circularity and then that point, the centrality about which all revolves. And so that was the point at which I kind of, if I say pinned down Ulysses Black, that sounds... It doesn't sound quite as quite what I mean, if you know. Uh, but it, it was the sort of crystallised everything to that point. How's that? Yeah, pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> the Ulysses Black Initiative is it actually over now, or is it continuing? Uh, and if so, why are you still using the name Ulysses Black? The Ulysses Black Initiative is certainly continuing and ongoing, and. Um, uh, I still use the name Ulysses Black because that is uh, still what I, who I identify as being. So um, in the process of becoming Ulysses Black, uh, as I said, I, I changed my name legally to, to yeah, Ulysses Yeah, people should Black. know this. It's more than just a magical name, isn't it? You literally became yeah. Ulysses Black. <laughs> yeah, I, tra- I changed my name um that was one of the explorations, was change your name to Ulysses Black uh, in all sort of legal legal manners, which really throws up some interesting things because you end up having to change your name with the vet that your cat's registered at and all sorts of things like that. And it threw up other interesting things like friends saying, we never realised how much we talked about you until we realised that we ha- were having to adjust the name we used. And, <laughs> um, but the... One of the interesting things about taking that name, I'm not sure if this is something I discussed in the Sitting Now video on the Summer of Love, um, but <laughs> when I became Ulysses Black, when I changed my name, sorry, to Ulysses Black, um, my, my mother said, please just do it for a year um, because I like the name that I gave you. And and I, I initially was just like, yeah, that's fine. But as it went on and I incorporated Ulysses Black into me, I really became it and really felt like, no, this is who I actually am. Uh, and so I have kept the name then because uh, because I feel that that is authentic to me. 
obviously you've got this book out you've had let's talk about some of your other work you've uh you're a publishing machine these days and you've been <laughs> you've been putting out one thing i thought was really interesting was your ai book the um uh what was it called the the Covenant of Thirteen Devils. Yes, that one. Yeah, tell, tell us about that because it's kind of that's a first, really. I think I didn't see any. I've not seen anybody else. No. So this was this was. Um, to, occasionally, I get these ideas that um, you know just sort of arrive fully formed. You know, you wake up one morning and you know, and there is an entire project idea just sitting in your mind, and so. This was uh, last summer with the kind of emergence of um, AI platforms like um, Midjourney and um, ChatGPT. Although actually, I don't think I was using ChatGPT, but I set about and I was I, I was having a question um, about what the, what these what the potential of these AI systems would be. And now, obviously, it's a year later and AI has changed an awful lot and and my interest in it has changed to be something different. But back then, I was curious as to whether an AI could write a ritual that could be done and could produce results. And I was also interested in whether an AI, i.e. a non-human intelligence, albeit one that is sourced from human language would be capable of creating um spirit entities or devils and so um thinking about the proximity of devils and spirits in um occult work thinking about the presence of the machine elves in the DMT realm or the presence of the non-human intelligences that the UFO world is talking about sort of the ultra-dimensional, um, ultra-terrestrials and, and so forth. This idea that there may be uh, these other, the jinn, that's another big thing at the moment, um, These the presence of these other entities that are just adjacent to us. I thought, okay, well, can an AI produce something of that nature? And so I set about getting an AI to create... Um, some text. I just said, tell me, you know, I started off with, um, oh, I started off with an AI name generator and I came up with the name of 13 different devils. And then I went to a text generator and I wrote, the name of the first devil is such and such. It is summoned by dot, dot, dot. And I just got it to produce material for me. And then I fed that material into image generators. Um, and I wanted to create a uh, a sort of a book of the mythos of um, these 13 devils uh, and iconography and it produced all sorts of interesting results um, with me being as hands-off as possible just curating it enough to make it actually work and laying it out but really I mean I left this was pre-chat GPT actually so the sentence structure is not always great like it is now uh, and so there are all sorts of flaws and there is in fact a revised not a revised an updated one in the works yeah. that i was just exploring but there are problems with that because ChatGPT and midjourney has understandably ethical boundaries and obviously an awful lot of things that revolve around summoning devils crosses those ethical boundaries and so i'm watching ai moderate itself 
And I'm not sure whether the results will actually be particularly interesting. Maybe we should wait for Elon Musk's one that apparently will be devoid of any ethics. And <laughs> <laughs> and we'll, see, we'll get the real deal there. Um, the other thing is the ritual lens. You've, that's an ongoing kind of project you've been... Yeah, so the ritual lens, uh, very quickly, is just a sort of... Yeah, it's a little project where I move the ritual lens over a different subject and uh, investigate that. And I've done various things. I've got some little booklets out and I've I've... I've made other little videos and stuff where I will look at something through a ritual lens to see what information ritual practitioners might glean from something. So for one of them, there was a book called um, Can We Learn From Cults? Uh, and cults have uh, an awful lot. Of, well, one, cults have a lot of rituals in them generally, but I wasn't looking at the rituals that cults perform. I was looking at what are the qualities present in cults and cult behavior? Because on one hand, there's this like amazing immersive enthusiasm that really seems to give people joy. It creates this kind of bubble reality that people are in and it causes them to make massive changes, behavioral changes in their life. Uh, and I thought that was really fascinating. And on the other hand, there's all of this scope for uh, abuse, manipulation and control and all of these kind of dangerous elements. And so I was there thinking, if we look just at what is going on in ritual, uh, in cults, sorry, can we extract some of those principles and feed them back into rituals? Or can there be warnings about the risks that we might have in rituals? So it's a kind of speculative piece um but that was a that was a little book that i published under the ritual lens series and i've got a variety of i've got a variety of those i've got a, a new one that's just coming out soon about the artwork of uh a local artist called jim sanders and his spirit house which is absolutely fascinating yeah, it looks amazing I've, I've not been to any of the things yet but the pictures i've seen look incredible yeah really really true yeah i should go really because he's, he's local he's <laughs> It's just down the road from me, I think, isn't it? I'll, I'll take you to the next uh, time the Spirit House opens to the Yeah, public. yeah, definitely. I'm definitely interested in that. Okay, so um, you have various online places where people can find you. Uh, UlyssesBlack.com. UlyssesBlack.com, yeah. Um, and there is a Ulysses Black Instagram. It's probably just Ulysses.Black. I, I don't remember the handle very well. And then uh, currently my publications are, or what publications are available, are being handled by my friends at midianbooks.com. That is very good. Very good. And do you have a Patreon? You have a Patreon as well? I think? Oh, I do have a Patreon, yes, mm. uh, which is patreon.com slash Ulysses Black. Yeah, and you can, you can get, I saw you posted, you made, you made a video recently on the beach where... Um, yes, so that was, I made a, I made a short video, I'd... I'd I compulsively make and engage in all of these kinds of artistic things instead of watching TV. No judgment on people watching TV, I just don't have one. So, you know, one afternoon I decided to sit down and make a mask covered in eyes and then just went down to the beach and uh, used uh, and tried to embody some ritual principles as a means of just exploring the ritual art form. Um, so there's, yeah, things like that. Get yeah. posted, and I've just posted an article on my Patreon about the pineal gland and um, and the tarot. Yeah, there you go. So, yeah, if you want more more Ulysses Black than 
you know, the average person, then that's the place to go. Don't be an average person. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, it's been great. Thank you so much for coming on. And I'm sure you'll probably be on the show maybe next week or the week after anyway, but uh, Thanks, in man. a different capacity. Cheers, Ken. It's been, it's been really nice to actually sit and talk through some of the stuff. Hopefully I've not waffled too much. Um, yeah, and uh, yeah, I look forward to being on the other side of the microphone once again as we talk to some of your guests yeah excellent wow and uh we i, I won't put an outro on this one like i said in the intro um because when it's just me i don't like to uh, to do an outro so this will be our outro but um yeah thank you so much for coming on the show thank you so much for listening don't forget to like subscribe if you're on youtube and don't forget to uh you know follow us and leave us reviews and all that stuff that social media types tell you to do um, we'll see you next week thanks for thanks for listening bye-bye